This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. My name's Afwa Hirsch. I'm a writer, broadcaster and former barrister. And I am delighted to be here today with the Pulitzer Prize winning writer and chief theatre critic at The New Yorker, Hilton Owls. Welcome, Hilton. Thank you. Hilton is... A huge cultural figure. Hilton, you're an associate professor of writing at Columbia University School of the Arts. Yes. You've taught at Yale University, Wellesleyan and Smith College. Yes. And you're one of the New Yorker's boldest cultural critics. Oh, thank you. And the reason you're here, apart from your long distinguished career, is because your book, White Girls, which originally came out in 2013, has just been released in the UK yes. in paperback. Yes. How does it feel to be talking about a book again that you wrote quite a few years ago now? Yes. Yes, um, it feels, um, I actually feel more connected to it now than I did then. Um, I come from a world of um, magazines, and so it's a different relationship. Books are a different relationship to the world. And because it's such a different animal entirely, probably... It's taken me this long to really get used to the idea of a book. <laughs> and so I'm enjoying myself with oh, it. That's great. Can you describe White Girls for our listeners? Sure. Um, White Girls is a is really a kind of mosaic about um, race and gender and personal history and history at large. Um, the ways in which gender, in, really in particular, affects um, behavior or affects one's point of view or or the world's point of view about an individual. Um, the, it's really sort of a combination of memoir, fiction, cultural criticism, and uh, fun, I hope. It is a lot of fun, yes. I have to say. And I found it such a layered book because there's the content and all of the themes that mm-hmm. you're describing, but also your writing style kind of problematizes people's perspective. You've deliberately written it in a way I felt that kind of catches people off guard yes. and blends different genres yes. and introduces things in sometimes surprising ways. And I was wondering whether you're deliberately kind of unsettling the reader and making them challenge the ways they think about things like gender and, mm-hmm. and love yes. and uh, culture. Yes, I think that... Um one of the things that I'm really trying to do is really write for myself to sort of not um, pull any punches with myself. Is that a British ex- yes. can, is that Can I use that? I yeah. love that you use that, yes. Um, it's, um, I don't want to sort of be, trick or fool myself while I'm writing. I don't want to use the writing as a way to hide. I, wanna, I want to use the writing as a way to 
be seen, be seen, be seen, and also to see um, in a clearer, more I wouldn't say objective way, but a, um, a less sentimental way um, than most of the time that these issues are raised. Can we talk about the title? Yes. Because I found that white girls... <laughs> when you were re- reading it on the subway, were you getting <laughs> dirty looks? <laughs> it's definitely an interesting experience to read it on London public transport. Yes. And I recommend that people do it. Yes. And people do raise an eyebrow yes. in a very British way. And actually, it's interesting because m- my writing, um, a lot of it is about our relationship to the discussion about race and identity yes. Yes. in this country. And I think British people are actually quite awkward in approaching it i would i would agree and 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 actually reading your book has been an interesting study well you're very (laughs) brave i mean i think that you're very brave to i mean the work that you're doing is is very important and and unusual still in the uk i used to find it painful in the late 80s for when there were people who were really sort of trying to make work around race because it was um it wasn't organic. It felt academic, mm, actually. Mm. And do you think, I'm asking you okay. because you're a smarter person, but yeah. do you think it has something to do with the fact that slavery happened elsewhere and yes. it didn't happen in the large cities like London? Um, it was empire, so it happened in other parts of the world or the or the um, the United Kingdom. I'm just wondering if it, because it wasn't part of the daily lives of people, what do you Feel. Yes, there's a quote from Salman Rushdie where he says, um, the problem with the British is they don't know their history because so much of it happened overseas. Yes, And I think that's really true. I think the empire was such an important part of British consciousness and identity, but it was also at arm's length. Yes. And it allows this kind of cognitive dissonance. We we never had segregation or right. um, overtly racist law. Right. Because, um, and we did. It just happened in countries like Barbados, yes. which I know is where your mother's from. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, actually, whether you feel... Do you feel a connection with British history and culture? Do you feel that through your mother you've inherited any of this kind of British, specifically British... Oh, history. that's that's a that's a great question, and I think that I've inherited from her and her mother and my father's mother as well. They're both sides of of my family from there. Um, <laughs> certain things like I wear socks with sandals, <laughs> or, <laughs> or and I I'm not I, ready to own that <laughs> yes, British thing. I'm afraid <laughs> I like tea, and um, it has something to do with I think uh, the importance of education as not only a tool for advancement, but a social tool. So I think that there were lots of influences that I would probably wouldn't even recognize as overtly British because the history of so many of those people that came, immigrated to America or London was really erased so that they could move quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, they were dropping history Mm -hmm. in order to keep moving. And Mm so, for instance, you know, one of the things that I want to do this summer is go to Barbados. My mother had a sister who was left there. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are all sorts of stories, um, origin stories that are that are maybe not true or much more elaborate um, than I even knew when I wrote about my mother initially. Mm-hmm. So, again, I have the luxury of going back, right, and doing a his- sort of historical dig, mm-hmm. whereas my family, I think, to keep moving had to drop history. And I think I agree with you in terms of I think that would be the parallel with Britain, right? If 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 empires happening over there 
then these these sort of um, citizens of empire are learning something from empire, which is that you try to forget yourself yes. and gear yourself to an idea of advancement that leaves often leaves people behind. And that's so, so something that's so interesting <clears throat> about the generations of immigrants, yes. isn't it? That first generation immigrants often have that just get on with it mentality yes. that it's about survival and yes. aspiration. But if you're born in the country they've moved to, you have a different set of questions. Well, you have, I think you have, I think my questions really are, where do we come from? What is the story of where we come from? I don't, I don't really know anything much past my grandparents' names, let alone mm. their stories, right? So it's not anything that they talked about. And mm. in that culture, children are not allowed to ask. Mm-hmm. You know that to ask is to just be considered... Um, Kind of insolent. Yes, and and um, I mean something that they didn't raise, you know, to sort of mm-hmm. ask. So um, I feel that the privilege of writing and thinking is that we have the energy and the will to go backwards, um, whereas their energy had to be harnessed to going forward. Mm-hmm. And you know, they had children. They had families that they wanted to raise, and generally they were women by themselves. Mm. Um, So I have enormous sympathy for what they had to do, but I'm also interested in finding out now who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I want to go back and and do that excavation. Oh, well, I really look forward to hearing about it if you do go and Thank you. I I really want to do... I feel feel very... um, I feel incredibly blessed to have been given the license by my mother to be an artist Mm -hmm. and a thinker, that cost a lot for her. I mean, I could have gone to medical school or whatever, um, but for her to have encouraged me to be this person is really kind of extraordinary. And she did encourage you, didn't she? Yeah, I really, I think she was great because she was a constructive listener, um, all sorts of things that I didn't understand about her um, came out after she was dead, after she died. I remember walking around and realizing that she, her mother was an alcoholic, and so that would explain so much her caretaking, mm-hmm. and also how she was different than her family, in that she was a caretaker um, for her children. And despite illness and whatever the hardships of her life, I don't think one of us ever felt that she, we weren't in, in mind. Mm. And I think that's what children want to mm. feel, right, is that we're in mind. Mm. So let's go back to the book. Sure. White Girls. I didn't even answer yes, that question. Yes, I think you were. Sorry. Um, so when I first um, started thinking about the book, um, it began really, the title began as a sort of, um, a friend and I were talking about my writing, and he said, oh, Hilton should write a book about um, black men. And the ed- my editor um, said, oh, he should write a book called Black Women, Black Men. And I said, oh, I'm just going to write a book called White Girls. And we laughed, <laughs> and I did. And what I was trying to do in this um, t- with this title is twofold. I was trying to sort of, in a way... Um, 
mark a different territory than books like Black Boy by Richard Wright, mm-hmm. Tar Baby by Toni Morrison, where the black author claims a black title. Mm-hmm. Um, what if I didn't do that? What if I claimed a white title? Mm-hmm. And what if it wasn't about, ostensibly about being a black boy or whatever? Um, what if it was about an identification and distance from this figure who is marginalized but also has access to power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she is also someone who um, struggles with feminist questions, mm-hmm. whereas I grew up in a matriarchal society mm-hmm. where they didn't deal with the patriarchy. I wanted the title in some way to be a confusion of themes um, that expressed <clears throat> something that you would hear at the same time express something you would hear in my neighborhood like, oh, that's a white girl mm-hmm. or he's going out with a white girl. And I was always fascinated by this diminutive, like why was it a girl when it was a woman or when I would work in fashion sometimes and they'd say, oh, the black girl is... And I'm like, but that's a woman. So I wanted to take these tropes and kind of mix them all together in a title that wasn't necessarily provocative but redolent of where I grew up and where someone would be called one thing or another. And it is very much a rejection of tropes, your work, isn't yeah. it? It feels I like... I so. I felt that. And, yeah. and you... One of the things that I really enjoyed was your exploration of what you're supposed to be as a black yeah. man versus yes. what you are and I love so there's a character in the book your friend SL yeah I love him um, who yeah. I think everyone who reads the book must also be in love with yes. because he's just such a compelling yes. person yeah he's a great person and your friend Mrs. Vreeland yes. who sadly died yes and there, there's this sense of what kind of friendships you're meant to have yes. and what kind of films you're meant to enjoy yes. and what kind of places you're meant to go to. And, yes. and you kind of just kind of go around in often quite a fun way destroying those tropes, yes. which is, it's it's quite an emotional roller coaster because it's often really enjoyable, but there's tragedy yes. in it as well. And it also feels at the same time that you're mourning the friends that you lost yes. and the world that you lost in the New York that you describe, which I've never experienced the New York yes. of the 70s and 80s, yes. which seems like such an incredible cultural moment. Yes, it, it was one of the great experiences of my life knowing those people. And also it was such a great time to know them because um, I think, well, I think it was sort of like the last gasp of a kind of pre-conservative mm. um, area around art, certainly, where it wasn't necessarily created um, equated with money. It was equated with freedom. Um, and I think what I miss when I speak to you and I see how you moved is it was really a sort of a portrait of freedom in a certain way, despite um, racial troubles, um, strictures, and so on there was something really incredibly freeing about knowing those two people mm. and they, and their encouragement of me as an artist. Mm. Um, I do miss them terribly mm. all the time. Um, but I think, I think that they gave me things that they wouldn't want me to um, stifle, mm. um, that I would have to keep living in, in order to tell their story too. I, I hope that it comes through how much I love them. 
It it does to yeah. me. And there's and I wanted really wanted to ask you about this. There is this fascinating twin theme through mm-hmm. the book, mm-hmm. and you describe SL as your twin. Yes. And there are lots of references in different contexts to twins. Yes. Where does that come from, that, that way of looking at things? Um, my brother and I moved around a lot, and I was just thinking about this, and we were very close because we were always sort of put in different situations, and my brother didn't speak much. So I translated for him, and I think that that was one way that I started writing. Um, so I think it really begins with my brother, and then... When you have a fracture with a sibling you that you're close to, you sort of look for it in, in other people. So I think between him and also a woman, um, my sister, who's no longer with us, who was older than me, I had that kind of desire with both of them never to kind of separate. Mm. And when the separation happened, I think that the they're really kind of the biggest traumas of my life was separating from these people and then cleaving. Mm. You know, it's we have so few opportunities really to connect with people in that way. Um, what you learn, or what I'm learning in psychoanalysis, um, analysis is um, I can really have it for myself now. Um, that's the kind of strange part of life is that you evolve mm-hmm. and you take from those relationships what you, what was valuable and you also see the, that you kind of almost always had it within yourself. Mm. Um, that's what I'm learning now anyway. And there is a story in the book as well which really touched me about mm. your mother's friend who had a baby. Yes, Hilton. Called, called Hilton, yes. who died. Yes. And that your mother named you Hilton as a replacement, as, as, of, as a I don't know, mark of respect, replacement yes, for this replacement. It's it's a it's a quite a problematic, but also very poignant yes, thing. And it's something that my mother would do, you know, to to make someone else's life better or to give hope in a certain way. Um, it's a true story. So I don't. I'm just grateful to her for her depth of feeling for other people. I think that's one of the things that I for sure tried to inherit it or tried to inherit. So it's, a, it's a kind of a, a stamp of compassion on you. That yeah, you but maybe she was this. twinning, though, in a way. Maybe what you're asking me is, did my mother twin first? And maybe she did. Mm. I never thought of it that way. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Families have a lot going on. 
Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids. And for parents, try three new brainy chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You talk about other cultural figures in the book. Mm-hmm. I was really taken by the chapter in which you imagine yourself as Richard Pryor's sister. sister. That's, a, that's a short story, yes. Um, tell me about that. Uh, that really is all because of Dave Eggers, who was the original publisher of, of White Girls. He published it at McSweeney's. And um, and he's a renowned writer himself. Yes, he's a no- the novelist and novelist Dave's, Dave Eggers, who has published um, very famously. His first book was called The Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, and he's gone on to write many more books after that. And he edits and owns a publishing house named McSweeney's, where he publishes people like David Byrne on music and so on. Um, so... Um, he, um, he said one day, I just think that, I just know that you have, you write fiction probably. And I said, no, 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 I, I never do that. He said, I don't believe you. <laughs> Go in your trunk, um, and look and look to see what's there. And in fact, after I wrote about Richard Pryor specifically, I wrote this very long monologue, um, uh, where I imagine Richard Pryor's sister speaking, um, about what it meant to be the sibling of a famous person. And she wasn't a performer as well, but who never really achieved his status. And what would it mean to be the sibling of a famous person and you're in the entertainment business yourself? That was the ostensible story. But then it goes into her describing other lives that parallel her own. Does it seem convincing to you as a voice? or? Yeah, um, if I'm honest, I was actually confused. Oh, you thought it was a <laughs> yeah, real prayer? Yeah, I, I thought it was Oh, good, real. it worked then. And then I, I, I started, you know, it was only right at the end that I yeah. started thinking, okay, you know, I, I, I get this, like Hilton is very oh, that creative. I was, that I was pretending to yes, interview her, yeah. Yes, but I thought it was real. So it was, I found it very convincing. Good, the good. And it's also an interesting kind of commentary on the porn industry at the same yes. time. Yes, yes. Were you trying to make a porn about that or was it all part I was of you trying to make insight? a point really about someone who was uh, forgotten um, and whose work um, was de facto something that people wouldn't pay attention to um, because they're, lo- they're not listening to the sound, they're looking at images so I wanted her to be um, famous for something that was not known um, I mean I could have said I could have described her as, you know, the best um, make the best person to put raisins in a Danish or something, <laughs> something very strange like that. But I wanted her to be in entertainment um, and have a marginal relationship to entertainment to parallel his enormous success um, as a performer. There are so many cultural greats in the book you know Richard Pryor is referenced mm-hmm. you talk about 
um, Jean-Michel Basquiat. And, yes. and I was really excited to kind of feel part of the birth of the painting, um, Arroz Compolo, because yes. I've looked at it and not known of any the of the context oh, around yes. it. And that's a true story. Yes. Right. That your friend, Mrs. V, Mrs. Really? Freeland was, was with him yes. when he created this painting. And it's so incredible. Do you know, when I look at the dates, we're like 21 years old. She was 22, maybe. And so I'm just amazed by... It's almost as if we've had two lives, right? There was a sort of life before AIDS um, and then life after AIDS. It's, it's, it's very interesting. I wonder how much... I often wonder how much I've been affected by it, and I know that it's had an incredible effect on my life. I think I'm still trying to deal with the grief of AIDS. And I'm also simultaneously trying to understand the grief of grown-up loss, Mm. too. I mean, AIDS figures, friends, through 30 years old. Mm. And then you jump 25 years Mm. later, and there's this whole other sense of, Mm. of loss and not belonging. So it feels as if it's happened twice in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, the losses that I've described in the book mm-hmm. happened when people like Mrs. Reeling were 21, Basquiat 21 or 22, and then they were gone. And so in our 50s now, it's a, it's a, we've experienced it twice. And so do you feel that you're partly processing it in a way that you couldn't? I think for sure. You were sure. so young the first time. Oh, for I... sure. You know, you're just... Um, stunned by grief um, and you're stunned by the idea that you're not going to be protected from it um, that loss is germane now to who you are I think I was trying to love I miss them so much I wanted to make them alive again and it's um, it's an intense experience reading the book because you almost romanticize that period of time in your, but you don't because mm-hmm. you don't shy away at all from the grief and the pain and the sickness. Mm-hmm. And you feel both as a reader. Are you conscious that there are people like me reading the book who were, weren't alive then or were very young then? And yes. we're learning about this time that is not available to us to experience. Yes. And, and there is a tendency maybe to project this kind of fantastical view yes. and romanticize it because all these um, creative people were living in a world that doesn't feel that it had been kind of commoditized and commercialized to the same extent Mm -hmm. as we live in now. And if you just look at Basquiat's life and the way he is kind of sold and traded and um, made this lucrative. Yes. And also as a sort of a figure that has so little now, so little to do now with really who he was as a person, you know, to sort of deify black figures like, um, Basquiat and Baldwin and so on is to is to take them out of real arguments, real discussions to keep them alive through argument and discussion I think is more the point of what we want to experience as opposed to embalming them in some and, way. And do you think that's what this is what they would have wanted to be talked about and discussed, sure. not to be I mean, worshipped? I've only, I only knew one person, one of those two guys and for sure. And then with Baldwin, absolutely, he says, you know, um, especially in an essay about Richard Wright, that he wanted to sit down like men and discuss things with 
his mentor not to be the mentor anymore, not to be the protege. I think he was all about conversation and debate, and I think he found hope in debate. That makes me think about this thing. Sometimes I describe it as the the burden of authenticity mm-hmm. or the paradox of authenticity. The idea that you and I thought you write you wrote so powerfully about this in White Girls. Mm-hmm. The idea that you it's your job to explain blackness and to yes. explain the black experience yes. and the kind of dilemma of wanting to be able to communicate your experience but not feeding into the idea that that is your duty mm-hmm. and that you must always be limited and confined to writing the story. And you mentioned Tar Baby and mm-hmm. Black Boy and even though they're both incredible works, yes. you kind of know what they're going to say right. before you've read them. I think about- if the titles are giving you half of the story in a way, I love both of those books mm-hmm. and I just think I'm a different writer. I think every writer is, is or tries to be in conversation with writers that they've loved before. And I love Richard Wright and I love Toni Morrison and I want to be, you know, even to approach having a conversation with either of those people is extraordinary to me feeling. Um, we have different points of view and I think that that's really our job. Um, is to is to have a different point of view. You know this as a writing in the Guardian. Um, you're bringing up things that are very, in a weird way, new to to Britain. And so, of course, there's going to be awkwardness, um, or I'm going to disagree with you know great writers, black writers. But I think that's our job. We have to sort of stay in good health to really sort of be critical and energetic in our criticism and also in our hope. I think criticism is a is a way of hoping for something to, you know, better work. It's hoping for better work or ho- hoping for a deeper conversation or, or a reprise of this perfect conversation. I think it's it's all about optimism in it's a certain way. It's an optimistic way. thing to do because yeah. you believe that things yeah, can Yeah, and it's improve. hard. Like, you keep, you know, you're writing... Is, writing is hard. Like the thing about it is that life is short and writing is long. It just takes a long time. Why would you want to spend um, time on something that wasn't worth being part of the conversation? How has the conversation been since White Girls came out in the U.S.? How was it received? Um, I'm not not to sound pretentious, but I don't read reviews very often. But um, David Remnick, uh, my boss, had me scan one, and it was very kind of him, and it gave me a lot of courage um, to come out here and promote the book. (laughs) And um, I feel there were some people who were looking for arguments in the text that had to do with um, really their own careers, you know, trying to make a career off the book. And then there were some people who really just, like, you appreciated the language for what it was. And so I think it's great that it's not been pigeonholed, and I think it's great that it inspires, you know, conversation, which I said is is hope or optimism as far as I'm concerned. Do you feel like we are moving away from that kind of single narrative 
the idea that um, and by the way Toni Morrison is literally my favourite fiction writer I love her I've read everything she's written but in a way you know when I've wanted to write fiction it's been intimidating because I don't have a story like that it's not my story and it's so powerful and it's so profound and it's so dark yeah but you have your imagination yes exactly but and I and I I and I tell other people, you know, that we should we want as many voices and as many stories. That's mm-hmm. that's the beauty of literature. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we are getting away from this single narrative and this idea that there there is this black story? I think I think that um, one of the things that Tony did that was so great, which was to minimize the white world um, in terms of how black characters saw one another. I think that was a profound thing that she did. I think she has helped. Um, advance this idea of who gets to speak for whom. Um, I feel that um, there's something much more sort of, for me, that I'm trying to do has different points of view. Um, And that might include a white girl's point of view with a gay man, black man's point of view. I think it's just a different circumstance, a different era. Um, I love Toni Morrison and I love Jane Bowles. I love um, Proust and I love James Baldwin. It's sort of, you can have the sort of multidisciplinary mind, one that absorbs things from all around. And I've learned from that. And I also grew up during a time where we didn't see each other on, in films and so on. And so that made me really read and look at things to find metaphors that described me. I was, so, I was less concerned with being the black boy in the title than I was in finding the metaphors that really described me to myself. And the range of references and, and quotes in your book is dizzying. Oh, it, it, I like it, to read. I see that. Yes. And I've had to look quite a few of them up. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I am not as well-read as you. Yeah. I don't know if there are many people as well-read as you. Oh. Is reading still a big part of your... Because obviously, you, and you watch a lot of theatre, yes. I imagine. Yes, I, I, um, I find that reading is very restorative. Um it can take me to places that I've never been, and um, it's just it's the it's a selfish job, right? We get to read all these amazing people's people, and who fortifies to do the work. I mean, it's an incredibly self indulgent job. Sit down and read a book because. <laughs> I'm interested. Like, that's we're very, very, very. You're not fortunate. helping exploding the cliches about journalism. <laughs> you guys just sit and read for a living. Like, no, we work really hard. Well, we work hard too. What are you reading at the moment, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I'm reading, uh, rereading Jean Rhys short stories because Carol Phillips has a novel coming out, a wonderful novel coming out about Jean Rhys, yeah. um, called Empire at Sunset, and. Uh, so I'm th- I've been thinking about her and rereading her. Um, she's a very important writer. I'm obsessed with Jean Reese. Oh, that's amazing. And I just wrote a radio essay about Wide Slug SOC and how it changed me. Oh, will you send it to uh, me? Yes, I would Please love to. Please send it to me. I would love to. I'm, um, I'm uh, fascinated by her, both her life and her work. Yes, and uh, the stories are great to pay attention to because t- they kind of end in a mid-sentence in a way. They sort of end not 
in a full circle, but very abruptly. So, but there's something so beautiful about the way yeah. her sentences are constructed yes. and her narrative is. It feels like the most beautifully crafted. Yes, work it's me. almost sort of limpid, and incredible. They're limpid. But also this incredible ardor behind them too. Exactly. Yeah. And the story of White's, I guess, I see that it took her nearly thirty years. She's an, that book is amazing, no? I think it's one of the most beautifully written books in the yes. English language. And also, I think she's done much to advance this idea of multi-ethnicity in Great Britain too, because her identification was with Black people. Yes. Coming from the Caribbean, yes. as a showgirl to England, yes. she. Um, that those scenes in Voyage of the Dark with the stepmother saying, oh, you talk like, I won't mention it, but extraordinary. Uh, so you're reading Jean Reese. Jean Reese, And um, I'm reading an amazing book by Auden on the rom- romantic literature in the sea called The Enchafted, Enchafted Flood. I'm also reading um, Tracy K. Smith's memoir, um, she has a new book of poetry coming out, um, and she's the Pulitzer Prize-winning poet laureate of America now. Wonderful writer. Okay, those are all references. I'm sure our listeners will want to follow up. Yes. Um, I just want to ask you about sexuality. Sure. And there's something have more of it. That's what I said. <laughs> Hilton that's says. My, that's my that's my advice. Something that <laughs> I found fascinating was the way you described the way black people are sexualized and Mm -hmm. there's this line you wrote where you said they act like people in a documentary yes i thought that was so fascinating and it's almost like they've been imprisoned in these ideas ideas that they then start acting out can you just explain a little bit about that sure i think i think that there's not one of us that really kind of escapes um the societal eye. And sometimes we rush, all of us, different people, rush to kind of fulfill a role um, that we perceive somebody wants fulfilled. So I, I think, and this is what Baldwin was writing about when he talked about sex and Richard Wright's books and the way in which ways in which black men were sexualized is it's a way of feeling um, threatened in order to have um, a violent response to black maleness. So that's a kind of code, right, that we can sometimes be complicit with out of oppression, marginalization. It's sort of like you give up on yourself and you become the very thing that people are afraid of. I think that's what Richard Wright was trying to show in Native Son. Um, But for me, the people that I love and the people that I've written about in this book, um, no matter what, are desperate characters, desperate to be themselves, desperate to tell the world that there are different kinds of stories. So I feel fortunate to have met them all as a writer. And the book is incredibly personal in parts, Mm -hmm. and you really get a sense of of somebody who's been on a journey yourself and mm-hmm. that for you to embrace who you are is, has t- taken time and had its highs and lows. Yes. Is that something you're deliberately sharing with people? Is there something you want people to take from your own 
pain and joy? I want I want people to walk away with a greater sense of feeling connected to other people. Um, and maybe this book is an example of a writer who feels and felt connected to everyone in the book, and that's a good thing to take away. Maybe they want to apply that to their own lives. Oh, that's like a lovely note to end on. <laughs> it's been such a pleasure talking to you, oh, Hilton. Well, it's so, I'm, I, I'm so glad to have a face to put to all those wonderful words. Oh, that's lovely. So keep, keep going. Well, I'm, I'm humbled that you have yeah. been reading my work, and yes. I have been reading yours, and I hope that everyone listening will go and get White Girls. It's out now in paperback, and I guarantee you will leave a slightly different person than when you began. So, Hilton, thank you so much. Thank you.